So, uh, thanks very much for having me uh, tonight here to talk to you about the lyophilization of protein pharmaceuticals. There's an easier word to lyophilization actually, which is just freeze drying. Um, and the lyophilization and freeze drying are dis describing um, the, same, the same concept. Um, just to give you a quick overview, um, I'm going to give you a quick introduction into pharmaceutical proteins. I don't know if everyone of you is aware of how special proteins are and, and uh, what special treatment they need if we want to use them as a pharmaceutical um, uh, drug. Um, then about the freeze-drying lyophilization, that's literally um, uh, what I'm working on at the Institute of Biomedical Engineering, um, which is um, up at uh, the Headington campus. And then a little bit of a modification process, which we've developed in, in recent years, which is also the spray, uh, spray, it's called spray freeze-drying, and funnily produces particles but completely different particles to what we've just heard. Um, to to uh, give you an idea about protein pharmaceuticals, um, currently there are about or a little bit more than 125 different pharmaceutical proteins approved from the regulatory bodies, which in Europe is the EMEA. Um, it's a central agency in London uh, which deals with um, the, the approval of protein drugs. In the US it's the FDA. Um, the worldwide sales of these protein pharmaceuticals increase tremendously from year to year and um, in uh, 2007 they reached more than 75 billion US uh, dollars. Um, the potential is tremendous because uh, estimates say that currently more than 600 biotechnological medicines, and this is not only proteins, they're also talking of viruses, of DNA, of RNA, um, addressing more than 100 diseases are currently in development. So there's a huge, um, a huge area of, of research which is going on, which potentially um, has, has uh, the benefit uh, to mankind in the future um, in, in terms of, of getting rid of some of the diseases we know. Some of the 1 billion um, plus biotech blockbusters in 2008 are all proteins. So for, exam for example, we have an etanacept, which is a soluble receptor, which is used, for example, for the treatment of arthritis. Um, 7.7 billion US dollars just with this one. We have uh, things which are used for cancer treatment like the hercepine or the avastine. Um, these are all monoclonal antibodies. And then something also very well known is a new development of, of insulin, um, or means new, it's from I think 2002, 2003, uh, which is called the insulin clargine, um, the lantus from Aventis Pharma, which is 3.6 billion. So there's a huge potential, and but there are also some limitations to protein pharmaceuticals. So what's a protein? Um, just for, for those who, who might not know what a protein is, a protein is actually a macromolecular a molecule consisting of low molecular weight subunits. And these subunits are the amino acids, and we have uh, 20 different amino acids um, are the building blocks of all the human proteins. We have a lot of proteins in our body, um, they're functional proteins, they're proteins in the blood, proteins, for example, which carry oxygen in the blood. We have uh, proteins which, which are make our hair, our nails, and so on. Um, and they're all made of amino acids. Um, and the way these amino acids are put together is always the same, but the order and what amino acid comes after which can be highly um, uh, different. And that makes the, uh, then literally then uh, constitutes the final protein. It is important that we have the right sequence of amino acids um, because this has evolved in, during, during the years, during evolution, literally, um, to make a, a stable functional protein. So we cannot just put some, some amino acids together and say this is a protein now which controls our blood sugar. Insulin, for example, has uh, evolved over years and years and years in our body as a regulator 
and therefore um, the amino acid sequence is very, very important for its structure. Now, what's the structure of these proteins? We said the amino acid sequence, and the amino acid sequence is literally what's called the primary structure. Primary structure is nothing else than one amino acid after the other. And then you can see, um, uh, you can literally then write this in a table and say that's, um, for example, insulin, 51 amino acids, and you can exactly say what's the amino acid sequence. Now, because the amino acids are also similar, um, what's happening within this long chain is we get a certain amount of folding. It's literally to get into an energy-favorable state. Um, and what's then happening is that proteins build up a secondary structure. And the secondary structure is, for example, an alpha helix um, or a beta sheet. It can be random secondary structures. And this, this is what, what's one of the higher, um, uh, of, of a higher um, uh, structure in the protein um, um, uh, structure. The next one is then the tertiary structure, which literally means that the protein chain falls into a three-dimensional structure. And this three-dimensional structure is very, very important because, um, for example, if we have an enzyme which catalyzes an, an, a reaction in our body, um, there might be a substrate which fits exactly into this three-dimensional structure of that enzyme. So this three-dimensional structure is important, and when we lose it, we can lose the activity of this enzyme. And then, if more than one amino acid chain um, one and more than one folded amino acid chain puts, uh, sticks together with others, then we get something which is a quaternary structure. So quaternary structures is not, uh, we don't find this in every protein, it's just when we have more than one polypeptide chain sticking to, uh, to uh, the other. Now unfortunately, proteins can be fairly unstable. And what can happen is that, um, um, the, the, that we can actually denature a protein. And denaturation of the protein, if you probably heard this, is nothing else that we lose this three-dimensional structure. The easiest thing of denaturation is if you boil an egg. Or if you, for example, take a steak, put the steak um, on, into your pan, uh, which is at uh, 100 degrees or even higher, and, and, and uh, make a, and boil your steak, you know exactly that there's something changing. Um, if you keep on doing this, you can see that the steak is getting stiff with the egg. You can see that the structure is changing. There's nothing else than a denaturation of proteins. And this denaturation actually cannot only happen with heat, it can also happen with other, um, other factors influencing it. So proteins are not um, that stable if you keep them around for a long time. They, de they uh, can denature. And in the worst case, what can actually happen is that they aggregate and precipitate. And that means that different protein uh, chains then start interacting with each other. They lose their conformation, um, and because they want to get in an energy-favorable state again, um, in a low-energy state again, what they start is, for example, they're building aggregates. And these aggregates um, most, li most likely don't have function anymore, and in the worst case, these aggregates can be cytotoxic or can uh, cause really severe actions uh, in, in your body. So you have to make sure that this is not happening. Um, or, for example, it can also be form fibrils. So, for example, insulin or, or glucagon, these are the proteins involved in the regulation of the blood sugar, they can form fibrils under certain conditions which is also not favorable um, because you don't want to have this. You can't deliver something like this to a patient. Other factors, um, we said temperature, not only heat, actually proteins can denature if you cool them down. So not every protein likes being put in the fridge. Um, ionic strength, if you have, for example, ions, if you have a high salt content, for example, just like sodium chloride in a solution where there's a protein, it might, uh, proteins like might start denaturing or the pH of a solution might change that. Um, Nonpolar solvents. So, for example, you can denature proteins easily with, with ethanol, and this is, for example, what we do, for example, for de disinfection. 
Um, and mechanical stress like stirring or shaking can also denature proteins. So if you have a protein solution and you do something like this, um, it could happen that 50% of your protein is already gone, it's aggregated, and it, it will not do a pharmacological effect in the body. However, most instability reactions are actually dependent on the presence of water. Um, and uh, in particular, not only um, the, the, the physical ones that I've showed you, but also you've seen the amino acids. There are a lot of uh, chemical groups which can do also oxidation reactions, deamidation reactions, and so on. So, and everything is, uh, or a lot is depending on the presence of water. So, what's the solution? What, what do we do to literally um, um, stabilize the protein? Now, it's fairly easy. Um, we put them into the fridge or the freezer, and not necessarily with food. Um, but um, this way we can either cool it down, which means we decrease the reaction rate for such a degradation reaction, or we put it into the freezer, which means we solidify the water, we solidify the complete system, and therefore also decrease reaction rates or limit the water availability. But what do we do here? What do we do in the desert or in Africa or in uh, third world countries with a poor infrastructure where we actually do not have a fridge or a freezer or the energy to preserve this. Do we say we're not going to treat them with, with proteins? Um, we have to find a solution of, of doing this. And it's not only that, um, that here, it's, it's also in, in our, in, in our um, environment. I mean, you have to transport things um, from one place to the other. And if you have, a, if you have a literally, uh, if the cold chain of refrigeration is broken at a, at a certain point, everything is gone. And keep in mind, these protein pharmaceuticals is a huge development. Um, one vial might cost a thousand pounds, so you don't want this. So you have to find a way um, of, of getting around this. So what's the solution? We do a dry powder protein formulation. Now how do we do this? We do this by lyophilization and freeze drying. That's literally um, what we're doing uh, uh, up the hill and what also a lot of, um, of collaborating pharmaceutical companies are doing. Um, Freeze drying means we remove the water, and with the removal of water, we um, can increase uh, the shelf life stability of the freeze dried products because we literally have taken water away, um, which is a main reaction partner or main promoter of chemical but also physical degradation reactions. Um, freeze drying is a reversible process, which literally means we take the water out, we store it then in a dry state, and later when we want to uh, inject it again into the bean, for example, we put exactly the same amount of water in, re-dissolve it, and inject it, and um, so it's a reversible process. Historically, um, the first records of freeze drying come from the Inca, um, because what they, they have done was they um, were literally using uh, food products, and they froze the food products in ice and, and snow, and then they stored them um, in, in the mountains, where you have uh, a small reduced pressure, you have a little bit um, input of, the, the air is very, very dry, and so literally this was, was um, and you need a little bit, um, um, uh, energy input to keep um, the freeze drying process alive and with the, they used the sun radiation for doing this and this was literally the first records for freeze drying. Used then in the second world war and particularly for, for uh, freeze drying plasma um, products. So what's the physical basics of a freeze drying process? Now, the physical pr it literally consists of two things. First, you have to freeze everything and second, you have to somehow get the water or the ice crystals out. Now, the physical basics is uh, shown here. This is the phase diagram of water. We all know the different uh, states of aggregation of water. We have gas, liquid, solid. And this is the phase diagram, how they all relate each other in temperature and pressure. So what, are, what do, we do, we, do we have? We have our uh, protein formulation, which is in the liquid state. 
that we are starting at this point. And in the first instance, what we're going to do is we're going to freeze it. We're going to transfer it into a solid state by lowering the temperature. And then in the second instance, we are re we're keeping it at low temperature, but we reduce the pressure. And if you can see here, what we then do is we have a transfer from solid into gas without going through the liquid state again, and this, this effect is called sublimation. So we literally sublime the ice directly into water vapor. And this water vapor is then taken away from the product, and what, what you end up with is literally, you end up with these freeze-dried powders, and I've, how instrument, this is instrumentally done, or equipment done, is you have here a freeze-dry, you have your product on it, um, we, have some, we have two like this on in, in the lab, um, you have a shelf which can be heat controlled, you can cool it down, you can heat it, uh, and your product sits on, on the shelf, so you can do the freezing on the shelf. Then you have uh, a vacuum pump connected to the system, and you have a second chamber with a condenser, because you have to condense the, uh, the, the water vapor somewhere, you have to um, literally make sure that, it, uh, that it's transported away from your product. And this is how, for example, the industrial freeze dryer would look like. And we have a small pilot scale machine as well as a, as a, a benchtop freeze dryer. Um, in our laboratory. Now, what can all be freeze-dried? It's not only protein pharmaceuticals which can be freeze-dried. You can freeze-dry antibiotics, you can freeze-dry vitamins. Um, antibiotics, maybe one of, of you already had this. This usually come in, in a small bottle. You have to, um, to fill it up to a certain mark, you shake it, and then it says the pharmacist will tell you don't use it for longer than 10 days. It's literally a freeze-dried um, antibiotic powder. You can freeze-dry foods, flowers, um, you can do documents, if you, for example, had a fire and, and not everything burned, but now most of the stuff is damaged from, from the fire because it was, the fire was extinguished water. You can do documents, you can preserve, preserve um, objects of historical value or for uh, taxidermy. If you have a pet, for example, you want to uh, keep around for a little bit longer. Now, the freeze-drying process, it's not just in freezing sublimation, it's a little bit more complicated like this. You have to prepare a liquid formulation. Your protein has to be stable in the liquid formulation in the first place, but the formulation has also to match the freeze-drying later. Then you do the cooling and freezing. Then what's called the primary drying. Primary drying is where we lower the, uh, the, the, the pressure, we take a vacuum, and, um, and uh, that's literally where you supply all the ice. And then you have secondary drying. Secondary drying happens not at low temperatures. You keep the vacuum, but you ramp up the temperature to room temperature. And you need this because sometimes not all the water is frozen. It's for, for example, amorphous systems. It can happen that water is, is, is still be a little, little bit around. And then afterwards, you stop all the vials. That's literally all done in the samples I showed you. And then you store them. Unfortunately, the freeze drying is not um, uncritical in regards to pro, uh, protein stability. What can happen is that the cold temperature, the freeze concentration, phase separation, pH shifts during the cooling can also lead to protein denaturation and aggregation. And on the other side, of course, the removal of water can lead to protein aggregation and denaturation because our proteins are used to having this aqueous environment around, having this huge amount of water molecules around um, in our body or anywhere uh, else in, in, in the universe. Uh, not universe, but at least in this world. How does a freeze-drying cycle look? Um, this is just a typical run from, from our pilot um, instrument. So you have the time on the x-axis, you have uh, the temperature here. Um, what we're going to do is, we in, in the cooling phase, we're going to cool that down. Then this phase, where we heat up again and keep it at uh, still sub, uh, zero temperatures by for a longer time, is called an annealing step. This has to do, we need an annealing step if we have certain properties of our product. Then we're going to cool down again to minus 40. And around at this point, we're going to start the vacuum. 
and this is where the primary drying starts. And then to put some to to um, because freeze drying is a long process and we want to shorten it, we usually then ramp the temperature to minus 20, which keeps this product still frozen, but on the other side um, makes the process a little bit quicker because sublimation is an energy-depending process and we want to put a little bit energy in to keep the sublimation going and we do this by ramping the temperature to minus 20. You can see this is the product temperature, the, product, the, the temperature measured in the product and that is usually below the surface, uh, but that's always below the... Um, the shelf temperature until all the water is supplied. So there's nothing which needs energy anymore for sublimation. Then the temperature in the product increases and then here in the second part we have the secondary drying um, just in case to make sure that the final product is absolutely dry. What are the minimal criteria for such a stated protein pharmaceutical? We don't want any unfolding and denaturation. Um, we want a minimum of protein aggregation, ideally none. Um, there are some implications of class transition temperature so, um, here. Then uh, the residual water content should be low, ideally below 1%. Um, and we want an elegant cake structure. And that's very important, and particularly if you, if you deliver your, your products to Asia. In Asia, the cake must be perfect. They don't want it to be, for example, shrunken or collapsed. It has to be an ideal perfect cake. And you're, for example, not allowed to put a label in a way on, on your vial that it uh, obstructs any view towards the cake. They will send you back the complete patch, in particular, for example, in Japan. So it also has to be, have an, a, a nice appearance. Now, our work is in particular trying to formulate um, certain proteins, trying to formulate also other new things like vaccines, um, like, um, for example, viruses, DNA, RNA. And um, you always have to ask yourself a question. What's the root of administration? Is it really something which is just kept like this and rehydrated and you inject it later? Or, for example, do you want it for pulmonary application, so you inhale a final powder, for example, or nasal, it just goes into the nasal cavity. So for vaccines, it could be interesting as mucosal vaccination. And what's the type of API? Is it a protein, is it a peptide, a virus, DNA, RNA, or is it even just a small molecule, uh, just a normal chemical molecule, which is then usually not that difficult? And then we have formulation excipients. We need certain, we have to find uh, solvents, buffers, surfactants, bulking agents, because sometimes you have just two or three milligrams of the drug, um, but if you freeze dry just two or three milligrams, you think there's nothing in the vial afterwards. So you want something which bulks it up a little bit, like you, for example, know from tablets. And then we need protectants, in particular for these biopharmaceutical drugs, peptides, proteins, viruses, DNA, RNA, to keep their structure um, stable. And um, cryoprotectants are used, for uh, example, during the freezing. They keep the structure stable during the freezing. And lyoprotectants are, for example, used to keep the structure alive during the dehydration. So when we take the water away from the protein. And we, what do you do there? You have a look into nature. And in nature, there's a, a very nice um, animal, which is called a tardigrade, or water bears. And this animal can actually survive um, conditions without water for a very long time. And what does it do? Um, in an active state, it's really nice. And in the anhydrobiotic state, it does um, embed its proteins into sugars, and particularly uh, trialose. Trellus is a disaccharide, similar to sucrose, and it embeds all its, its structural proteins and sugars. And from this one, literally the water replacement theory was developed. So what, we, what it is, is you have water with this tremendous, um, so very, very polar, and you have then the sugars with a lot of hydroxyl groups, which you can nicely embed the protein into it to keep its structure alive. And 
Unfortunately, not every sugar works for every protein, so there's a lot of things you have to find out to find the optimal, um, the optimal um, formulation, and we're trying to develop some high-throughput screening methods to do so. And then, of course, you have to test, is the protein selective? And that's another um, thing, um, for example, protein analytics. So how can you see if the secondary tertiary structure of the protein is still stable? So secondary structure, for example, you can use something which is called FTR spectroscopy. So it's a Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy method. So we put light in, the substance interacts with the light and gives us a spectrum, and the spectrum can then be evaluated. And for proteins, for example, we have certain bands, an MI1, 2, 3 band, um, which are different in shape and, and in depending on how the secondary structure of a protein is. Um, if you want to have a look on the tertiary, oh, sorry, if you want to have a look at the tertiary structure of a protein, for example, um, you can do this with fluorescence spectroscopy. Um, proteins usually have an intrinsic fluorescence, and this is, has to do with a, a, an amino acid, which is called tryptophan. And um, depending on how the tryptophan is exposed to its environment, the emission band um, on the fluorescence can shift um, uh, uh, it's usually around 340, 345 as its maximum, and then it can shift depending on what's the environment of um, the tryptophan. And then you can also see, has the protein, for example, unfolded? Is the environment of the tryptophan, which is usually inside the protein core, more polar, because it's now exposed to the water, so it has unfolded. And this is how you can um, uh, find out about the protein stability. And this is a very um, large area we're going to work on. So it's just an example for a protein. Um, you can see here, this is the MI1 band of the FTR spectrum, of the infrared spectrum, and you can see um, the untreated black one, um, there are not a huge amount of differences, the untreated black one is literally the protein without processing, and then um, the pure with no excipients freeze dry, after freeze drying rehydration is the blue one, so you can see a substantial difference in these two bands, and this is due to changes in the secondary structure. Um, which can then, for example, lead to aggregation, loss of enzyme activity, and things like that. And then, for example, if we have a complex formulation using sucrose, mannitol, dextran, and polysorbate 80, these, these are all sugars, and this is an interfacial active substance, you can preserve its complete stability. To make this a little bit more visible, we usually then take these bands, you can here do um, um, a deconvolution, and uh, here this is the second derivative of that spectrum, and then you can um, have at certain um, wave numbers, you can see um, peaks for the alpha helix, for an intramolecular beta sheet, which is inside the protein, or for example, for an intermolecular beta sheet, when actually this aggregation process is starting, when more than one or in different protein molecules start interacting with each other. Similar things you can, for example, do on the, on, with the tryptophan fluorescent. You can see from the untreated black line here how to uh, a pure, no excipient, freeze-dried solution is changing. You can see a, a shift, you can see a loss of, of fluorescence signal, um, and you can use also these techniques then to evaluate what is the right formulation to do so, and you can do this, for example, also in a high-throughput screening um, assay. And then, very classical methods from, from, um, from pharmaceutical industry, um, which are very, very well accepted from, uh, for example, the, the um, regulatory bodies, are things like um, um, size exclusion HPLC, where you, uh, it's a chromatography technique, um, where you put your sample through a column, and then depending on the size, they're separated by size, and you can see that, for example, for no excipients here, you can get a peak, which is aggregates, which are these things which we definitely don't want to have in because they could be cytotoxic, 
and if you um, formulate this um, with sucrose manitol dextran, um, so literally we have reduced this peak to almost a non-detectable level. So one thing we, we've, we've just started is, for example, to do this all in situ. So not just freeze-dry it and take then the powders out, like you've seen, and then re-dissolve it and, and test it. No, we said we're going to want to do it in situ. We're going to actually see if we, if we change, for example, the freezing rate, if we um, change the drying rate, how is the protein structure changing? What has this for, for direct effect to, to come with more robust formulation design? And one thing is we have this type of miniature freeze-dryer, which is, which is called a, a freeze-drying uh, stage which is built into an FTR microscope. So we literally have now the FTR beam directly going into this cryo stage, into this miniature freeze-dryer where we can simulate a normal freeze-drying process. And um, the thing is, our FTR microscope is, is, is equipped with a focal plane array detector, which means we cannot just take one single point sample, we can also map a complete area. And what you then get is, you get these uh, chemical images, and these chemical images for our, for our formulation here uh, consist of 64 by 64 FTR spectra. So we have 4,096 spectra, literally almost taken in less uh, than a minute. And you can then evaluate also the spatial distribution, if there's phase separation of different, uh, of, of the protein and its, its stabilizing material, which can happen, for example. And um, you can, each of these points can be completely evaluated um, in regards to its structure. Good. Sometimes, and these are the last three slides, sometimes you not need a powder like this, which you want to re-dissolve and then you check um, with the needle in syringe. Sometimes you want to have discrete particles. Particles um, literally like this, which are free-flowing, which can be used for nasal or for pulmonary um, application. Um, they can also be re-dissolved and injected, but sometimes you want, uh, want to have something, something like this. So there's a modification of, of the freeze-drying process, which is called spray freeze-drying. We literally have put a spraying step into um, the, the freeze-drying process. And how does it work? So you have your liquid solution, exactly um, same liquid solution you had, for example, for the freeze-drying. It has to be formulated a little bit different because you have additional unit operations you're using. Um, you atomize your liquid solution with a nozzle into a fine spray, and you do this directly um, above liquid nitrogen or directly into the liquid nitrogen. Liquid nitrogen is at minus 196 degrees, so your droplets, you atomize, freeze immediately. So it's, you have literally frozen droplets. And what you then do is you collect your frozen droplets and you put them into the freeze dryer. Um, a laboratory setup for this literally looks like this. You have a peristaltic pump for, your, for the liquid feed. You have an ultrasound nozzle. You have then a stainless steel bowl on a magnetic stirrer, for example, which is filled with liquid nitrogen. So you spray into this, you let the liquid nitrogen boil off, put everything onto the pre-cooled shelves of a freeze-dryer, and then you do the freeze-drying cycle. Freeze-drying cycle is a little bit different, formulation is a little bit different, because you have additional unit operations. And what you get in the end, then, is you get these type of particles. So what I gave around is literally exactly these type of particles. These are scanning electron microscopy pictures. And you can see um, these are particles which consist of a complex sugar mixture and, and are loaded um, with a vaccine. Um, and um, you, you can see how, how they look like. They have shrunk a little bit in, a, in, a, in, in um, appearance. They originally uh, spherical before the freeze-drying. And then we tweak the freeze-drying process a little bit to make them shrink because we wanted to have them fairly dense because these are particles which are used, for example, for needle-free injection device. So this is a device 
which uh, is not loaded because yeah, I don't want to give it a round when it's loaded. Which um, I have a prototype here. This is uh, one which might be used commercially. You have a, a gas cylinder in here with a pressure of, for example, 60 bar helium. You have a cassette where your powder is in, and then you have a nozzle um, along which you um, um, accelerate the, these dry particles you, you've produced. Uh, and this could be quite interesting, for example, for the application of vaccines, because we have a lot of Langerhans cells of the immune system in our epidermis, um, which could be directly targeted um, with something like this um, for vaccination, for epidermal powder vaccination. And we are currently trying to use this for proteins or for viral vaccines. And then, of course, if you design your particles a little different, they're also spray-free stride particles, also vaccine-loaded, um, actually exactly with the same vaccine, but the process is different, the formulation is different. You can see they're nicely circled. They are fairly porous. They're not as dense as the others. They're fairly porous. They're very good for aerosolization. And you can use these, for example, for nasal delivery. So they have um, a size of around 50 to 100 micrometers. So they will deposit in the nasal cavities. And again, the nasal cavities could be very, very interesting place, in particular for vaccination, because you have uh, a nose-associated uh, nose lymphoid tissue, which can also um, be used for this. And just keep in mind, this is very often the normal route of infection anyway. Um, but as I said, just a, a change of the design of the process of the formulation, you can create a completely different type of particles, which can then be used with these nasal delivery devices. So for example, for nasal vaccination or um, also um, for the uh, small peptides could be administered with this. So, small summary. Um, the green stuff is what I've talked about. That's what, what we do um, up the hill. Needle-free drug delivery, a nasal pulmonary and, and so on. And then of course, um, as almost uh, every, everybody dealing with drug delivery these days, we also do cancer drug delivery with nanoparticles, or so particles which are on the nanoscale, so much, much smaller as what I've showed you today. Um, and and um, just to give you a rough summary, um, what we are doing or what I'm doing uh, here. Um, good. Thanks very much for your attention, and I'm happy to answer any questions.